Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to a brand new episode for Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I'm honored to have Chang Choi on the show today, who besides being a very old friend of mine, we used to work together 20 years ago, he's a well-rounded technical sales and marketing executive, and I consider him one of those people that are like bridge builders, connection makers. His focus since I met him has always been connecting people with resources and each other. So it's no surprise that uh, he actually discovered my podcast. I I (laughs) didn't think I should have thought about this before, but uh, Chang, uh, you discovered the podcast and we started chatting and I said, you should come on. So hello. Hey, Letty, this is awesome to be on the podcast. I'm no. honored to be your guest also. I'm very, very excited. I just uh, told you before we started to tape that your voice sounds great, so I'm going to give you kudos for that. Anybody that does podcasting is is, is uh, thinking about voices. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I appreciate it, uh, Chang. You're someone that I know uh, is a very high-quality individual with uh, so many experiences that are interesting, both professionally and personally. So I'm very excited to hear about your journey all over again and, and learn about uh, who was Chang as a, as a child and, and how your journey be. So why don't you take us there from the very beginning? Sure. Um, happy to do it. And I will uh, try not to be too verbose because uh, I like to tell a lot of stories. And I think I got a lot of that from my uh, my father and also my uh, my grandmother. But I was born and raised in Chicago, primarily in the Chicago suburb of Glenview. I'm very grateful to have been born there. Pretty much had everything that I needed and wanted. I mean, I could say I lived a, you know, grew up pretty much a privileged life in terms of having everything that I've needed and wanted to do. Um, my parents met in the United States. They're both from Korea originally. Um, my father came over in 1959, and my mother came over via Canada like in the 60s, and they had met kind of set up in the Chicago area. But uh, both of them, they lived through the Korean War, which was a uh, war that happened in the 50s, but really the struggle for them started probably their whole lives um, since the end of World War II in 1945. So my dad is, he's still alive. My mother passed away, but my father is 84 years old. And um, so much of my upbringing was night and day compared to my my parents' upbringing because they grew up through war, didn't have everything that they needed, you know, struggled in this country to have everything that uh, they had. And, you know, I grew up in a in a house and I grew up in the suburbs, had a bike, had, uh, um, you know, I played ice hockey, I played Baseball, I played everything it has it had uh, going for me, and I think that was probably good. But also, at times, you don't realize how grateful you are till you get older, right? Um, Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, you probably appreciate more, and, and I'm happy uh, that you're sharing that uh, in terms of your parents and their background, because I think that some of our parents, you know, and, and I've had guests on the show that have had that upbringing that it's so difficult. They, they really strive to try to make their kids' life as easy as possible. Did you feel that growing up? You know, um, as a parent now, Maybe not necessarily easy, but not have as many of the struggles that they have, right? Of just having enough to eat, mm -hmm. um, having enough to um, survive, but then say time balancing of not spoiling your children, right? And so I think the work hard ethic was was pretty important. It was school academics was very important in my family. So um, I think a lot of it was stressed on, you know, getting good grades, but uh, no matter what, you still have to have school first, even though you're, you know, playing all these activities and whatnot. But um, one of the models that my uh, my father always said was that. You know, I didn't have all this growing up because you know, his his hometown is where uh, is now North Korea. So they had to move after World War II ended because uh, essentially his family had some land and uh, they were being utilized by the Japanese because Japanese occupied Korea from 1905 to 1945. And uh, they were pretty much going to get run over by the communists coming in or the Korean nationalists that would uh, go in and call them um called people with land and money, essentially loyalists to the Japanese. And, you know, it was chaos. So I've heard the story from many other people whose families are from what's now North Korea. They had to flee as far as possible. Mm. Um, so he always said that, you know, you have to be better than me, right? And you, you do basic measurements. Like, I only have a bachelor's degree. You guys need to, you know, set higher dreams and further because you have everything that you need. And I didn't have everything I needed. So that was always kind of the uh, measure success, not of, living up to what uh, you know, parents say, because my father was a successful businessman. He um, worked a small uh, uh, electronics company and did well for himself. I mean, he traveled a ton. I guess I kind of got that uh, urge to travel from you know, seeing his pictures at the Coliseum in, in Rome and going to Mexico City, going to you know, Barcelona, going everywhere else. And uh, he always said, you still have to be better than me. And you know, in fact, I think I worked a couple summers at his company just helping out and he's like yeah i don't think you really want to work here because he was never an owner there or whatnot he's just like a vice president and okay. he'd, uh, inspire me to to work somewhere where you can grow a lot more um and it's kind of funny was that he only worked for one company you know some 30 plus years and then he retired and then myself and you know the reality of the world right now is that uh most of the companies i work for don't even exist because they either got bought out or, <laughs> or startups and they stop Yeah, definitely it's a change in that respect. That's a good point. It's definitely different. And, and you know, I remember I sometimes joke about this is when you make uh, metaphors about uh, people that are serious at work. It's like, oh, they're like they're bringing their briefcase to work. And I remember my dad's briefcase coming in and out of home all the time. It's like, yeah, oh, what's he carrying in there now? It's like we have everything on our, you know, not even laptops and our smartphones that we don't need to bring briefcases Don't wear ties and suits. True, um, but true. Although some of the lawyers listening to this might <laughs> <I> not be. <laughs> I see them with the carry-on sometimes leaving my office because they have so many paperwork. But yeah, no, that's funny. We it, Yeah, it's changed, absolutely. And so growing up, what were you interested? I mean, obviously you had a very rich background and I think that work hard ethic that you have and, and that I think I have comes from that, having parents that really started from zero and had to leave their country and had to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. 
And then what were what were the things you enjoyed to do? Like where you were a kid, were you envisioning yourself being something in particular? You, you share you like travel. So that's already something that you had identified. Yeah, you know, I, I think eventually I figured out what I wanted to do when I was 19 years old. But when I was a kid, you know, I loved playing baseball. I was out in the backyard playing all the time. I was a voracious for information so the newspaper i would just look at statistics and try and memorize statistics and whatnot so i love kind of data and now it's it's even crazier now because one of my sons looks at the uh national hockey league app and he's looking up statistics from uh from like 50 60 years ago so oh, wow. i think yeah, i was the voracious thing about learning facts you know i i think i always loved jeopardy and i loved uh, watching like wheel of fortune solving types of problems know sports I loved baseball and then um, played hockey also but then when I was 12 or 13 years old um, the Chicago Bulls drafted Michael Jordan and everybody wanted to be, be a basketball player okay. so it was really uh, amazing just because uh, he uh, sometimes you see him driving around and obviously you see him on TV all the time so sports was really huge um, I really wanted to do music but it wasn't interesting to me until probably middle school uh, my sister who's older she was two years older. She took piano lessons for like 10 years and she had this really strict teacher. And I tried taking guitar lessons and I was like, ah, I don't really want to practice. I just want to have fun and play with it. And uh, as I look at the way music now, which is a huge part of my life, is that I still play today um, a couple of times a week, you know, multiple performance groups, whether at church or uh, with, with groups. And my sister, she won't even take her piano she actually uh, sold it she doesn't want to play i've invited her to play in groups and i realized that um, music could be two different things for people for me music was about getting in touch with uh, improvisation curiosity music harmony working with other people in groups and for my sister it was working hard at something that's very hard to be able to accomplish something and i see that in her day-to-day -day now because she went on to get a PhD in computer science. It's something that's not very easy to do. Mm -hmm. And then um, when she does activities, um, she will do something to the max extreme. Like when she got out of school, she was working at a national lab out in uh, New Mexico. And she's like, oh, I got an activity I'm working on. It's boxing. So she started boxing. And then she eventually went to do a Golden Gloves boxing fight, which was I think, just crazy. And then she eventually realized that wasn't for her, stopped. And then now I got her into playing ice hockey about 10 years uh, or 15 years ago when she plays like four times a week because she doesn't have any kids and her, and her husband are into these hobbies. So I, well, like music was a music, I think was such an important thing in our lives because it taught you a couple things. You either get in touch with your, your uh, kind of spiritual side and the other side was the discipline side. And I appreciate it for both because um, it's just a wonderful part of my own life. That, that's awesome. You know, you, you made me think of something that when you don't have expectations, you probably approach music as I don't have expectations about this. So you could, you know, improvise and be curious about it. Maybe she was like, no, I, I, I know what I, this should sound and how I should play this piece. And when you don't allow improvisations, it, it's a whole different thing because that's me. I took seven years of piano and I've always loved music and I played the guitar in school. So mm -hmm. I could come up, I, I used to write my own songs oh, and, wow. and everything got messed up when I decided to take formal piano lessons. <laughs> and then I took all these piano lessons and I could read and I could play, but I would put in so much stress into playing it right that, mm -hmm. you know, my husband, Don, who is a professional musician, he said, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> you have to let the hands flow. 
Mm-hmm. But it was too late. To me, it was after seven years, I was so frustrated that I barely mm-hmm. have touched my piano. Ah, well, there's so many more musical journeys. I'm looking up at my office here. I've got a mandolin, ukulele, and a classical guitar. And my closet, I've got three electric guitars and a bass. And oh, it's my just, God. I just get into some fun feelings. The next thing I think I need to get is a banjo. I've got a it's kind of a slide guitar. But the ukulele... Um, it's really interesting. The ukulele is one of the most interesting instruments because it's so simple. It's only two octaves, yet the journey of it, where it came from, I've discovered it in Hawaii, right? I'm in the West Coast in Seattle, and people go to Hawaii for the weekend. It's really close to us. And I started listening to it, and then I looked at some of the chords, and now it's just kind of similar to guitar, but um, a couple, only a few um, strings or whatnot, and I started following some YouTubers, and then reading about the ukulele, it's originally from Portugal, because the Portuguese from Madeira, they invented this, and this is the way they entertained themselves, and the ukulele is also the cavaquinho in Brazil, and just for this small instrument with two um, octaves, you can see some incredible virtuosos, you know, like Jake Shimabukuro, or... Um, uh, Aldrin Guerrero that uh, you know play classical to you know incredible rock songs. So I look at that, and the biggest regret I have is not discovering the ukulele any sooner because I started playing about ten years ago. And if I need to feel better about myself, I just pick it up and strum a few chords. Oh, I love that, and I love that what you say that there are so many musical journeys. So you have a list basically standing by of instruments you're gonna tackle on. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the mandolin, the way I got it, actually, I bought my mandolin, my first mandolin in Florida. I was on a trip up to Disney with uh, our friends, mutual friends, and then there happened to be a guitar store. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get a mandolin. The reason I got it was because my father, who um, put my sister and I into music, he said he was terrible at music. But he loved music. He had classical records, um, all the show tunes from, you know, that were very popular in the 60s and 70s and, and whatnot. And he said that his uh, uncle had told him that, you know, you're not good at music, but so maybe you don't try the violin or the piano, which is for a little more sophisticated, harder, but try the mandolin. It's a little bit easier. And I'd heard the story of um, other friends. I think a friend of mine from Venezuela, she said that, oh, yeah, I grew up playing the mandolin. And I started thinking about the mandolin, how it is in many different places. And then I um, mentioned, picked it up. I started playing in a Brazilian group and then realized that Jacob de Bandolin was one of the greatest mandolin players was from Brazil. And there's so much Shoto music that has got the mandolin there that um, um, that they just realized that uh, it's these musical instruments go on crazy journeys themselves. You know, bluegrass obviously is really big, too. So um, I'm a lot about the journey, kind of a little bit of a hacky uh, music ethno- ethnologist. Um, especially around stringed instruments and guitars. I mean, I look at where I live in Seattle compared to where I live in Chicago and then other places I lived in in the U.S. And I look at the the guitar and the sounds of it and uh, sometimes compare the sounds of the guitar from the blues and the delta, you know, a little more acoustic and you start hearing uh, more electric sounds in Chicago. And then when Seattle started booming in the 60s and 70s, you know, Jimi Hendrix to then... um, some of the guys like Pearl Jam, Kurt Cobain, and, and uh, you know Soundgarden, their guitars sound like Seattle because they sound like supersonic jets, which were big from Boeing. And then Kurt Cobain's hometown is uh, it's Longview, which is a timber town, and Soundgarden they sound like kind of uh, timber mills and chainsaws versus electric factories and all. So I'm very, I guess, observant and extremely curious when things in my mind are triggered by sound or sight or 
or words and I, you know, try and dig it and discover a little bit more, just understand a lot more of the why or, or um, reasoning behind certain things that I observe. Wow, I, I love that. Uh, definitely curiosity is one thing that all my guests have in common. And I guess that's probably when they tell me, what do I need to do to, <laughs> to be on your <laughs> podcast? And I guess I should start saying that. Be curious about things because then we have a lot to talk about. I know you also have a special attachment to Brazil or to the Portuguese language. How did that come about? It happened really out of luck. Um, I went to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, which is a pretty big state school, um, a couple hours south of Chicago. And it's kind of a farming community, but it's very international because um, there's uh, a lot of agricultural ties and engineering ties to it. And when I was studying in college, my sister, she had studied Russian. And then she, one summer, went to uh, Siberia, of all places, Irkutsk. And she you know, had a great experience. I'm like, yeah, I want to go study somewhere. And I'd taken about six years of Spanish through high school, but I didn't take any in college, so uh, I didn't get the requirement to go to Spanish-speaking uh, countries. So if there was a program that I could study, you know, a semester of Portuguese and then um, live in the family and go to school in Brazil for the summer, so I decided to take it. Um, and kind of similar to what you said before, is I really didn't have any expectations because I knew Brazil had beaches, music, and, and soccer, which I love playing soccer, too. And... Uh, I just went. I really lucked out with having a great host family. To, to this day, still uh, uh, I'm in contact with them. They've come and stayed with me to take English classes and have gone back numerous times. And um, there's a lot of commonalities with Brazil that I found out. Um, I think it's, whether it's fate or serendipity, but um, when I got to Brazil, I, I was told, oh, you're, you know, your birthday is actually the... the uh, um, the Independence Day of Brazil. So my birthday, September 7th, is actually like the July 4th of Brazil. Oh. So that kind of popped up to, you know, other serendipitous types of things. Like my sister, I took her there around the country um, when we were in college. And uh, she was born on November 15th, which happens to be the um, the Day of the Republic. So mm -hmm. uh, both of us have like very important dates in Brazil. Um, that's so, so that's, interesting. It is. There's there's actually quite a bit more. I mean, I'm still involved with the Brazilian community out here in Seattle, of all places, where we've got a really um, small but strong um, Brazilian community. But uh, I just believe that, you know, there's angels or people out there that really um, put, pointed me in that direction. Um, myself, I think it helped it with my identity in a sense, because um, growing up in the States, um, as Korean-American, we had a bunch of, a handful of other Korean-Americans, but I grew up in a predominantly... Um, Jewish and then Caucasian area and that a lot of people of different colors but uh, you always wanted to fit in so um, although we I spoke Korean at home with my my grandmother my parents we spoke English and we go to church you know we rejected a lot of that because it was like we wanted to be American we wanted to you know fit in or whatnot but then when I went to Brazil you know, it was the last thing people thought of who I was you know um, people would, on the street would look at me and start speaking to me Portuguese or call me Japanese because there's you know over a billion Japanese and from Sao Paulo. So that was <laughs> the first thing that people thought I was from Sao Paulo. And after a while, I have to explain yourself and about, no, I'm actually American and my family's Korean. I have to learn how to say it in Portuguese all the time. And then well, they want to learn more about me. So then I keep retelling my story and realize that, yeah, I mean, my face is the first thing that people are going to notice about me. And after um, going there probably for... A couple times I realized, you know, my, my grandfather in Korea I've only met once and um, 
when I was younger, I better go back before he, he, he passes away. So I, I went back actually to Korea in, in 1994, which kind of um, was a was a great trip for me to realize that uh, I have a Korean identity that, in talking about back to basics, uh, is a lot more about me and my nature than, than as much as I wanted to. Because, you know, the environment that I grew up in was really American, but um, naturally I've got a lot of Korean values and, and roots that, I, you know, I don't even realize. That's so powerful what you're saying. And there's something that kind of forces you to reject it subconsciously. I don't know if you feel the same. Yes. Um, even the other day, I thought, I've been in Miami now 23 years. It has mm -hmm. been a city that I have always loved, even before I lived here. But mm -hmm. at the same time, if I find myself speaking about Miami, like sometimes I have to say I don't honor it enough. Like maybe I, mm -hmm. I say I talk more about the bad than about the new, the good, which is strange mm -hmm. because I'm normally the opposite. I speak more about positive than negative. And mm -hmm. I realized the other day that probably because Miami represents the fact that I don't live home anymore and that I mm -hmm. left my country and that I don't go mm -hmm. that often, you know. So I kind of the other day ha had that strange realization like you have to come to terms that you like Miami <laughs> and uh, and uh, that you feel part of it. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Um, you know, and, and as I had, had children, um, I have twin boys, actually. They're, they're 12 now. Oh, boy. I started, I started thinking about nature versus nurture. Um, and there's extremely interesting documentaries. And whenever there's an article in National Geographic about twins, I'm always reading about it. And there want to be an argument that by nature, you're going to be exactly the same. And by nurture or, or nurture, you're going to be different or whatnot. But it comes down to a lot of conclusions that it's a combination of your environment and also it's kind of your natural being of tastes and preferences. So kind of my back to basic story, which um, I started discovering and was a bit ashamed of, of growing up was, uh, you know, my name, my full name is actually Chang Hak Choi and my parents never gave me an American name. Most of my, um, my colleagues, my other fellow Korean Americans, they always got American names, but my father kind of said, well, um, we thought about giving your, sister an american name but never did it and then he decided just to keep uh our names korean by actually honoring his father my grandfather um the opportunity to name us because my grandfather actually was a bit estranged from my father um they grew up in a, a different time I mean, it's only two generations ago but my grandfather and his brothers who had land up in what was north korea they had concubines so they had like probably two to three wives and then during the whole craziness of the Korean War when they went down to the uh, the southern part of the peninsula. Um, my grandfather kind of abandoned my father and my grandmother and sister, or my, my aunt and all. So my father was a bit uh, angry at my grandfather for a lot of his life. I think eventually he forgave him, but um, that was the one thing that he said that he'd allow my grandfather to uh, um, have is the, the ability to name, name his kids. So that was what my... Um, my grandfather gave me and my name actually in Korean means um, prosperity through learning. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, I was embarrassed about it when people would ask me, what does your mean name like name mean? Um, like my sister's name was like beautiful sunrise or something, right? The girls get the pretty names all the guys have to have some braver or whatever. Mine's a little more philosophical and I've uh, embraced it to realize that, yeah, I really am a voracious kind of learner and, and curious person. Um, so that's what I think really um, is kind of towards my nature versus nurture is my um, 
you know, what's the definition of my name is prosperity through learning and prosperity can mean different things, whether it's uh, obviously uh, um, financial wealth to experience types of things. And, and for me, I mean, I, I haven't gone more than, you know, <laughs> five or six hours without eating a meal. I, you know, I know I always have um, the ability to survive and as a human being that I think the uh, prosperity for me is a lot more of the life experiences and the human interactions in my life that uh, that uh, that make me more fulfilled. Well, and 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 you do sound um, like someone that keeps true to your sources of joy because I love it when we are having uh, you know an interview and we really haven't even gotten to like what is that you do for a living and what's your job and I think so many people define who they are by their job or their title or yes I'm a I know you're a civil engineer so I'll just throw it out there but I also know that you work in many things always on the technical side and feel free to obviously say something about that but I love the fact that you probably are one of the very, very few guests that I've had that, you know, we've been talking for maybe 25 minutes and we haven't touched upon what is that you do for a living. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You know, I remember hearing early on when um, I started traveling when I was 19 and you'd run into, I guess uh, the, the first time I started, I ran into these grad students who they call themselves ABD. And I didn't know what that was. It's all about dissertation. And some of them were 25, some were 30, some were 40 years old <laughs> that were professional travelers just fighting grants to go everywhere. And, you know, you'd run across these people or run across in Carnival in Brazil, these uh, really interesting people that um, came from other cultures, like some German guys that say, yeah, I'm a gardener in Germany. I work for six months in Germany and then make as much money as I can. Then I come and live here six months in Brazil. And the, the I guess the, the term that I heard a lot was, you know, I don't live to work. I work to live. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I think I, I, I do a bit of that. But obviously, you know, with uh, the modern challenges of putting your kids through school and, and uh, you know, and, and whatnot of being able to, uh, you know, retire with, uh, you know, the, the challenges of uh, different expenses that do come up. I definitely do appreciate a challenging work lifestyle. Um, and I have changed my career a few times. Um, I did start as a civil engineer. Um, initially, actually, I studied computer science in college um, just because my sister got into the prestigious school. And um, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I guess I'll apply there. And I got in. I did it for a year and I realized that at the time, we had to go to computer labs, basements of all these buildings, and I go, I don't want to be debugging my program the whole time. You know, I kind of want to deal with people, and also then I was going to go possibly do geography, and then closest thing, I guess, because when I told my father I want to change my major geography, you kind of, you know, you're never going to get a job here, right? And the tough Asian parent there, so I'm like, I found civil engineering because it could be very technical and you know structural with some high math analytics and stuff, and then it could be um, very people focused with uh, transportation, traffic planning, um, urban development, and whatnot. So I was happy with the change. Um, and I studied, you know, two years afterwards, get my master's. And in that whole time, when I studied abroad in Brazil, you know, I wanted to work on big projects around the world because I realized that not only if you're building infrastructure, but you're uh, providing resources and helping the people around you there. So initially, my plan was taking grad classes in transportation. So. I was researching all these different companies that were building mass transit systems from uh, um, light rail to subways or whatnot. And then I ended up uh, working for a company that was big into power plants. 
mm. which was extremely interesting. So I worked really in civil engineering and power plants for four, almost five years, uh, a couple of different companies. Uh, the first company, we were doing a lot of natural gas power plants in, in Argentina, um, and a couple in Brazil. I never traveled there, and that was one of the reasons why I moved to telecom, was that in these power plant type of uh, construction companies, um, the civil engineer isn't the uh, usually the project manager, it's the uh, mechanical, because it's the biggest part of the equipment and the plans. So I learned a lot about um, kind of natural gas that was booming in the uh, late 90s, middle late 90s, and worked a bit in hydropower um, and a little bit in nuclear power. Um, mm. So I still have a lot of interesting um, curiosity towards the power grid. Um, well, uh, that's good that we're moving into a sustainable world. I think you have a lot to investigate there. It's very curious. And um, just the, the side of, I guess, energy and and climate change or whatnot is is I I feel almost that uh, we are accustomed to living a comfortable life where we're born under man-made light and everything else. But if we really think about it, I mean, if we cut ourselves off, like people are cutting the cord for cable, but if you cut the cord to uh, the electricity and other utilities that are in modern cities, there's quite a few people that wouldn't know how to. There's resources you can survive it might not might not be the most economical, but um, you know, you can get sun from red. You can get energy from the sun. You can get energy from obviously some types of fuel. You can get energy from um, a lot of different sources. You know, even water off your your um, your roof and, and whatnot. So um, I'm always curious about these little types of hacks. And you know, I am a semi-serious camper, mm-hmm. so I pay attention to a lot of camping technology. And I really um, have been attracted to these companies that are, I guess. Social, um, either social entrepreneurs, I forgot, but social enterprises where you might buy one thing for you and then they, uh, like for example, a life straw. You buy a life straw that you can take camping in case you don't have, uh, run out of water, you can drink straight out of the stream and then they'll um, provide that uh, same thing to a, a developing country. Um, BioLite is another company that's uh, kind of a curiosity to me. And um, there's several design companies out here in the Seattle area that are big into camping and surviving that I, that I follow. So um, that's kind of another curiosity that I have. Um, and I'm trying to do some a little more, I guess, personal research and uh, you know volunteer work in these organizations. Well, it sounds to me like the list of instruments that you have. You have a list of interest also on on the professional side, which is fantastic. And, and and so it sounds to me you've, you've lived a pretty balanced life. I'm sure like in any musical composition or life, uh, there's not only major chords, there's so, there are also the minor chords and, and the combination of both are, in my opinion, what makes life interesting and beautiful. So can you share any of those minor moments, the, the struggles, like the any really hard to deal uh, moment in your life and how you overcame and how you stay true to to who you are and say okay this I'm grieving something uh, and but I'm moving on oh absolutely um, and I'm, I'm glad you got to that point because I, I did think about a lot of what I, I wanted to share because um, yeah even though we can live as uh, with everything that we need um, from a resource point of view of food water shelter a lot of times emotionally and um, I guess 
yeah, emotionally and spiritually, you don't necessarily have everything you need for whatever it's external or internal types of of uh, traumas or whatnot. So for, for myself, I think um, growing up privileged, um, within a two-week span, when I was 13, both my mother and my grandmother passed away, and I was in eighth grade. Oh, and wow. so we had... That's tough. So we had, it was, it was really tough because it was unexpected, but kind of expected. My mother had been suffering from depression and um, she was a nurse, so she had a very stressful job along with um, her family, had struggles. Um, they all came to the U.S. and they all have been successful now, but there's a lot of wounds even today that some of my family members don't like to talk about. But, uh, you know, she was uh, obviously an integral part of my life, but the thing I realized probably many years later, probably most recently is that, um, you know, your parents had lives before, before you were born, right? And they're human beings and they, and they continue to have that. So, you know, I don't know all the history and all the details, but, you know, um, you know, mental illness was, was, on, um, was the thing that she had to deal with quite a bit. Um, and then, you know, I watch out for myself and my sister because, you know, there's hereditary types of things with that. And then my grandmother was actually my father's um, mother. She had suffered quite a bit with um, growing up and uh, with, she had a hard life. But, uh, you know, even today I'll show my grandmother's picture to some uh, family friends or household friends and I'll start crying saying how kind of a woman she was. So um, it's really nice when I can reminisce about that. But then they, they passed away within two weeks of each other. So my father, since he lost his mother and his uh wife within two weeks wow that is heavy i'm so sorry to hear that yeah it was um hard and i think a lot of my family and cousins didn't uh didn't think i really understood because i was one of the younger cousins i was 13 or whatnot and some of my cousins really didn't even hear about it i mean they're they live in separate towns across the u.s so they didn't really hear stuff but um the thing that i think i learned the most and i'm realizing it as a parent today was that uh how did we kind of deal with it? Is you know, some people they they close up, other people talk about their the trauma or whatnot. But my father, who had uh, gone through that with himself and also a lot of other trauma, um, he you know talked to my sister and myself. She was two years older, fifteen. She was in high school, and so he realized that we only have two more years of all three of us living together. So every night, uh, about nine fifty at night before. Um, before we went to bed at 10, he'd, he'd bring us over and we'd have a uh, little Bible study because he was became much stronger in his faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we prayed. And my sister and I, we weren't, you know, big church proponents. And today I go, but I realized that um, what's more important than going to church is actually having faith. Mm-hmm. And um, that word, I guess I didn't come to terms with until a few years ago. But uh, to me, faith has been always with me but in different words it's it's having a positive attitude that hey, everything's going to be all right and that's what i think i learned during that time um and i didn't really pray that much in my life until i'll say another trauma which i think you might uh, uh you can relate to this a bit too was is uh, the end of 2000 when the telecom sector started uh imploding and the whole stock market crashed mm-hmm. was uh uh, you know, we we were working at Nortel at the time, and there's tons of people. It was great that then I was seeing people getting laid off left and right, uh, friends on the same floors, you know, guys in cubes next to me and everything else. And that for one time in my life, I just could not eat. I was just feeling just awful about it, feeling helpless. And so I started to, uh, you know, 
uh, kind of pray in the mornings right right when I got to work just to you know get it off off my chest mm-hmm. and and, and uh, having that gave me a lot more of a positive attitude and what kind of things that the, dealt with the layoffs there was that uh, some of my team members um, that were either getting laid off or potentially would I just started uh, wanting to give them something a um, tangible that they could go to the next job so I started just writing letter letters of recommendations or referrals and gave like two or three to all my team members and uh, that was that, that felt good and I think they appreciated that absolutely well I, I, at the point I didn't have anybody under me but I always said and and uh, you know I'm I'm publishing a book very soon and I speak about the Nortel like what you just described it's exactly what I wrote it's it was very um, unsettling to see friends of yours people you know were top talent uh, arrive to their cube and then being dragged out and and that's it they're gone that was very traumatic for me and I didn't have a team at the time but I did appreciate that uh, the boss that I had at that time was Mm -hmm. so open she was uh, uh, very outspoken just exactly like you you know instead of hiding it she said we have to brace for (laughs) for impact Mm -hmm. because we don't know when it's coming we know it's coming so in how you tackle uh, those kind of situations is very important I think yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, books have been actually a, a huge part of my life recently. Um, I set a goal this year to read two books a month because um, I just discovered reading books, I think, in my later part of life. Um, growing up, I was well, I was disencouraged, but I think actually I realized, going back to this whole nature versus nurture topic, was um, I did not have a propensity to read books very well. So I skimmed through books or read cliff notes when I was in um, uh, elementary school and high school to get through things. But uh, probably about five or six years ago, I I took my kids to an eye doctor appointment and I had my eyes checked also. And um, this one eye doctor happened to be very scientific. He had multiple degrees in eyes and was very much an eye type of nerd. So he was looking at her eyes and he was like asking all these questions and he saw something in my one son's eye, he said, the way his eye is shaped, he's going to have trouble focusing at reading distance. So his eyes are working four to five times harder than the normal eye. Mm. So, And my son at the time was having reading difficulty. And um, we realized that it was not because it was hard to read. It was just physiologically it was harder. Mm. So we worked with him on it saying, if you get tired, you know, look at the wall far away, defocus. Um and he got into special reading, but um, one of the lessons I think we learned was that um, because naturally it didn't come hard easily to him, um, we told him this is going to be hard for you. You have to work at it. And now he's a great reader, and he also uh, um, worked hard at it. He learned how that uh, you can overcome things if you really work hard. So during that period, I learned that the doctor said that my eyes were a little bit shaped like his too, and I realized that man, that's why I didn't like reading because I was falling asleep because I was so tired. <laughs> so. So I realized that, okay, well, now it's, I know it's not that I'm not a good reader, it's just that it's a little bit harder for me. So I've read in different mediums from audiobooks to, you know, digital to, I still do like print books and all. So um, I will continue to read. And actually, um, one of the other back to basics ideas I, I thought about um, listening to your podcast was uh, how do you continually improve your life? And one of the things I've been trying to do is, is, is making better habits. Mm-hmm. So, um, a couple of habits that I've picked up on the last few years is that uh, 
every morning when I wake up, you know, I don't look at my smartphone or whatnot. I actually do two things. I I stretch, do some yoga, and also I read my book before I check my smartphone or go downstairs. Wow, and, uh, that's great. And it feels great because, you know, the reading sometimes you can be passively reading. Other times it gets your mind kind of uh, the neurons all firing. So uh, I like that about the reading because it's actually your, your mental stretching that you do. And um, I'm not a coffee drinker even though I live in Seattle. Um, mm-hmm. But I found that I need less coffee because when, when the, the stretching of my spine gets all the neurons going and then reading of a book uh, stimulates my mind. So it's, uh, I believe it's better than coffee. Uh, I love reading. That's one thing that I need to get back to basics. I always, I'm reading something all the time, but I'm not reading at the speed I like because, you know, it, yeah, it's so much going on and uh, I'm getting to bed too exhausted at night. But mm-hmm. but then what I push myself is to realize this is a stage. You know, I have a five-year-old and a nine-year-old. So <laughs> yeah. it's also those times in my life where we, I tell my husband often, we are living at the, you know, this is it. This is the maximum it will mm-hmm. be required from us, I think, yes. both professionally. You know, we both have very demanding jobs and at mm-hmm. home. I think when we pass this peak, <laughs> it will get a little better. And I already feel it, you know, with not having mm-hmm. babies anymore. I already feel that maybe I can read one chapter <laughs> instead of half the book. But it's something that I have. I leave them in my nightstand because I say, as a reminder, I want to mm-hmm. read more. I'm doing more audiobooks, but I don't get the same satisfaction from it. Mm-hmm. So I'm still, you know, engaged, but the, the, the whole reading or listening to the book doesn't, is not the same as to having the book yeah. in my hands. But, do you read um, books in English, Spanish, or French, or all of them? Yeah, all of them, if the book cool. is really appealing to me. But bizarrely uh-huh. enough, I feel almost more comfortable reading in English these days. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I will read something in Spanish, and it will be like, oh, this feels easy. Why? Why is this book? And then I said, I'm reading in Spanish. It's like that na- you forget nature, going back yeah. to your nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. Sometimes something that is really natural with, for you, you have forgotten uh-huh. that is natural. Uh-huh. Now, do you speak Spanish to your kids? Because Don speaks Spanish too, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we decided awesome. that we want to give them, you know, we could give them bad Italian and bad Dutch. So we decided <laughs> because <laughs> we both can give them good Spanish. That's yeah. what we're going for. I uh-huh. think for them, the whole identity thing, because I relate to you that, you know, I say I'm Venezuelan, but I always feel like, I, but I have to explain, but my family is Italian. Yeah. Because what I lived is not what, my Venezuelan friends lived. It was different uh-huh. at home. Uh, yeah. My kids, I think they feel more American because mm-hmm. we've been here for so long and we are a little bit Americanized ourselves mm-hmm. that they feel more identified with, with who they are. Yeah, it's really interesting. That, um, one of my favorite words is diaspora. I've mm-hmm. learned that word because um, kind of my original journey to Brazil, it's like people think I'm Japanese here or whatnot, but um, on one of my outings with was my host cousin we're walking through a neighborhood and i see my last name choi presentes in this neighborhood in, in recife brazil so that we walk in and i meet leonardo choi and it happens to be that his father was a, a korean minister that moved there and their family started businesses so um i always am curious as to you know why people kind of look like you in certain areas and um i think one of the things i shared with you in our exchanges was that i uh, recently funded a a documentary called Geronimo, which is about the uh, 
Korean diaspora in Cuba, which mm-hmm. very, very yeah. few people know about. So yeah, I know uh, about it. Thanks to you, yeah. it was a great recommendation. Yeah, so I love diaspora and where people are at because um, you know, as a civil engineer, I think about how do people get places. You know, going back to the ukulele, um, I have some Portuguese friends that they don't speak any Portuguese, but they're from. Uh, the Northeast Rhode Island or, or big area, Cape Cod area where they ended up. And a friend of mine, he just kind of jokes and rolls his eyes. He's like, you know, the Portuguese ended up in a lot of these places because they were on whaling ships and they were on all these long cross sea journeys. They're like, enough, I'm not getting back on the boat. I'm staying here. Um, so that's interesting along with um, what they're talking about now is the Silk Road, um, which has brought so many cross religions and cross cultures across, um, you know, China and, and, and Central Asia, um, which I think that part is, is a bit fascinating, which I've never been to, but I'd like to study a bit more because there's, uh, I think I read a couple hundred thousand Korean descendants in, in Kazakhstan and, and Uzbekistan. Um, and then, of course, what uh, um, you're talking in previous podcasts about Indonesia is uh, that's kind of same way I think that uh, like Islam came to Indonesia or whatnot. So those kind of routes and trade routes or, or whatnot are extremely interesting to, to see all the history and the diaspora of peoples have gone around the world. That's that's fascinating. I feel that I need, and I say this with quality um, guests, which they are all quality, but you have so much wisdom and, and experiences that I feel I need two other episodes with you. One on, on specific subjects like, you know, the Korean uh, subject and just what you share about with the diaspora and, and all that. And um, But I want to keep this, you know, focus in you. And I know and I appreciate uh, the fact that you reach out and you said, I've discovered your podcast. I am enjoying it. So it means the world to me that, that we reconnected already mm-hmm. through the, the podcast. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I keep saying this because you would be uh, shocked by how many people give me advice on what should I do with the podcast, right? <laughs> oh, how many followers, how many downloads, how many. Mm-hmm. And then because you can do it and say, I'm doing this just for me. I'm not doing yeah. it for anything else. I'm just enjoying my conversations. And then I get an email like yours, and then it really makes my day, you know, because mm-hmm. something that I'm enjoying and I'm doing with no ulterior motive whatsoever, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. resonating with someone. And, and so it really means the world when you say uh, these are some back-to-basics ideas or these are some – because then, you know, we, we are really making a difference, even if it's a little one. Absolutely. I mean, it's a constant journey of figuring out who you are and how you evolve um, as you go through. I'm, I'm turning 50 in two years, and you know, I look back at my 20s, 30s, 40s, and um, you know, I just hope that my uh, my brain capacity doesn't uh, slow down, or you know, obviously certain things I forget or whatnot. But it's there's so many things that are um, wonderful and, and curious, and I'm, I'm thankful to have met very interesting people like yourselves, along with having the opportunity to uh, to have these resources and communicate. And you know, the language stuff I love to talk more about because you know, Portuguese is I speak much better than Korean, and I can speak enough Spanish and all. But mathematically, because you know, I, I do like kind of engineering and science, I would sometimes say to my my kids and even to um, some other friends, that is, you know, how many people are in the world and how many people speak English. But if you add on the, the billions or million billions of others, then if you think of percentage wise, how many people or how many things you have in common with people if you speak the same language, even the same words of hello, goodbye. Um, and it's something that I think that um, 
instead of wanting to be different, I, you know, I strive to, to find commonality and being, I guess, kind of an outsider, I always wanted to fit in or want to be accepted. It was pretty easy for me. I mean, it was like, oh, I'll play sports. Yeah, we're playing in sports teams or eat the same foods. Yeah, like McDonald's, like pizza, and you can have some conversations with it. But um, because of that, I think I was uh, always paying attention a lot more in my friends' homes, you know, in the streets, to other conversations that I tried to find the same things I had in my house that I grew up with that were um, same with everyone else. So um, whether it's connecting people or just finding the same common denominators of things, it's it's, it's really fascinating because it, life is a lot more interesting if you can um, if you can tell stories with each other and find commonality rather than differences. Right, I love it, and that's one of the really of the basics of the uh, Buddhism and in the, the Dalai Lama preaching, which you know I, I'm Catholic, but that's one of the things that attracted me the most from from reading the Dalai Lama books was that it's like focus on finding the common ground, mm -hmm. you know, and it was so powerful when I read it, and and really your perspective changes because even when you're arguing with someone if you if you strive to find the common like why why is she or he arguing about this mm -hmm. and then you say oh, well mm -hmm. because he loves his son <laughs> mm -hmm. well i love my son too so now you really can relate yeah so it's it's very powerful so chang to close you know i'm gonna ask you you share mm -hmm. so many things that you enjoy that are sources of joy as you say for you mm -hmm. but let's say that you have you're gonna have the last day on earth this is a cliche question <laughs> but, and you do have you can only do one and you want to do what makes you tick what is it wow um what makes you tick i think um i would probably like to um have my family close by and uh around a big table enjoying a meal <laughs> and uh It'd be, you know, I think about like a huge circular table with like a, a lazy Susan and stuff. Just everybody, I love circular tables because you can look at each other and everyone's equal. It'd be having a meal and, um, you know, sharing stories about each other and and, and good things about each other. Because I think that uh, my family, my sister's uh, you know, a couple hours away um, and families across the U.S. and even my um Uh, my host family, which I consider down in Brazil family, I'd like to probably share a big meal together with all the food that I like. And the food I like would be as as, as terrible as a Chicago style pizza or a Chicago style <laughs> hot dog to to uh, to feijoada to uh, naengmyeon, which is a cold noodle dish from uh, from North Korea to um, to other foods um, like uh, I love kibi and akapuria, which are almost the same thing. Uh, all the fried types of pastelitos from uh, from uh, the Caribbean, um, but yeah, sharing a meal and then talking about where all these types of uh, foods come from, and well, I think that would be uh, probably what I'd like to do is, is is having people together and enjoying good stories and good food. Yeah, so really connecting, which is how we started to in your introduction. You you really enjoy the connection, which by the way would be my. Part of my answer too, just to feel connected to the ones I love and, and to the environment. Yeah, that's great. That's great, Chang. Well, this has been fantastic. I'd love to have you on the show. I know the audience will appreciate this conversation, and uh, I definitely think it's not going to be the last one. So <laughs> you have an open invitation, and and we'll 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 talk about uh, some more of those amazing experiences you've you've had.
Thanks. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor being your guest. Thank you, Chang. Take care. Take care. <laughs>